I'm Gerhard Lazi, and you're listening to ShipIt.show, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and continuous improvement for the better. In today's Kaizen episode, we talk about shipping Adam's Christmas present, chapter support for all changelog episodes that we now publish. This feature was hard because there are many subtle differences in how the ID3 spec is implemented. Of course, once the PR shipped, there were other issues to solve, including an upgrade the world kind of scenario. Since Lars Wickman did all the heavy ID3 lifting, he is here with us too. Big thanks to our partners Fastly and Fly. This MP3 is served with minimal latency from the Fastly Edge location, which is closest to you. Our app and database run on fly.io because it keeps things simple. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb. Find your most perplexing application issues. Honeycomb is a fast analysis tool that reveals the truth about every aspect of your application in production. Find out how users experience your code in complex and unpredictable environments. Find patterns and outliers across billions of rows of data and definitively solve your problems. And we use Honeycomb here at Changelove. That's why we welcome the opportunity to add them as one of our infrastructure partners. In particular, we use Honeycomb to track down CDN issues recently, which we talked about at length on the Kaizen edition of the Ship It podcast. So check that out. Here's the thing. Teams who don't use Honeycomb are forced to find the needle in the haystack. They scroll through endless dashboards playing whack-a-mole. They deal with alert floods, trying to guess which one matters. And they go from tool to tool to tool playing sleuth, trying to figure out how all the puzzle pieces fit together. It's this context switching and tool sprawl that are slowly killing teams' effectiveness and ultimately hindering their business. With Honeycomb, you get a fast, unified, and clear understanding of the one thing driving your business, production. With Honeycomb, you guess less and you know more. Join the swarm and try Honeycomb free today at honeycomb.io slash changelog. Again, honeycomb.io slash changelog. We are going to ship in three, two, one... So the last Kaizen episode 60 was the middle of the summer, nice and hot, and it was just myself and Jared. And we were mostly talking about our post-Kubernetes to Flutter.io migration, we're talking about the cleanup, and Jared very briefly mentioned something significant that we had in the works, but that was not yet ready to ship. It happened, and today, all of us are here to talk about it. Welcome everyone to Ship It. All right, we're here. It happened. I'm excited about this. What shipped? Something is very different about this episode. It is. Welcome, Lars. Thank you. So for the first time in the history of Kaizen, we have one guest. Lars is here with us. So we had him before episode seven. That was the last one I recorded with Lars. First Kaizen. And depending on how it goes, maybe not the last. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no pressure, Lars. That's the one. Gar- uh, Gerhard, wasn't that the one where he convinced you to switch off of Kubernetes? No, that was the one where I couldn't convince him <laughs> to switch to Kubernetes. <laughs> yeah, but then later on, we switched off. So I feel like maybe he won that conversation. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Yes, we're no longer on Kubernetes. I think it worked, Lars. <laughs> Whatever you did, it worked. Yeah, that wasn't really the expectation. It's like, yeah, I can come on to your show and have a bit of an argument about Kubernetes because... It's a little bit ridiculous sometimes, and I felt like there were plenty of people having that opinion, but only so many people can come on the show when Gerhardt was like, you should come on, and we can talk about it. And we did. I did not expect you to switch off, Mm. but I think it's probably for the best. (laughs) I never did in my head. (laughs) I'm still still on it. Kubernetes somewhere, but... Not for change like <laughs> No, no. You're on Nomad now. Uh, yes, that is actually true. So yes, that was very well spotted, Lars. Leo Lundgren. I still have the email in my inbox. Leo, if you're listening, it was a super busy couple of months. I will get back to you. We will have a Nomad episode. But for now, just know that ChangeLog is running a Nomad via Flood.io and Lars mentioned it. I'm very glad you're Lars. I'm really glad that you're here already. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a weird cycle. I know Leo. Oh, you do? Yeah. How so? He taught me Linux. Wow. Wow. That's a big deal. This would be 
20 years ago. Really? Wow. Okay. In a small town, northern Sweden. <laughs> small world. Yeah. Yeah. That is a small world. It was fun. I was mowing my lawn and suddenly one of my original mentors shows up sending in feedback <laughs> to this show. That was an interesting listen. Okay. <laughs> I'm really surprised because there's something else connecting to this. I'm blown away. There's something else connecting to this, but I don't want to spoil the surprise. I'm just going to mention the first name. I'm just going to mention Auden. And um, I'll mention the surname in a few episodes, maybe. We'll see, okay? Oh, gosh. That's a, that's a big <laughs> teaser. Stick around for a few episodes. You might get the surname of the person <laughs> exactly. that connects somehow. If they will get a surname, he will be on the episode. He will be on Ship It. Otherwise, I'm not going to mention it, just in case it doesn't happen, right? So no one will get upset. So Lars, we attempted in the past to introduce you briefly, myself and Jared, and I don't think we did the best job we could. Now that you're here, do you want to tell us a few words about yourself or a few sentences up to you? Yeah, so I can start with the pronunciation of my name. So Jared can <laughs> just do. cut it in in the future. Lars Wikman. It's not a nice name to throw at Americans because it's... Lars Wikman. Pretty good. You're yeah. getting there. I'll get there one of these days. Practice makes perfect. Yeah, so I do a bunch of different things, but fundamentally I'm a self-taught Elixir developer and I really nerded in on the Elixir world. And I do some blogging, newsletter, YouTube channel, two podcasts, Gosh. and run a small consultancy. Lots of stuff. Pretty busy. I stay busy. Yeah. What do you enjoy most out of what you do? The variety of doing all of it. Uh, so everything. Oh, the cop out. That feels like the correct answer was my favorite thing is guest appearances on Ship It. <laughs> and helping changelog ship cool stuff for sure. Ah, that's right. Yeah, but that's the thing. The variety really gets to it because I get bored easily. <laughs> so anything will become a drag after a bit. Mm. But if you do a bunch of different things and you sort of stitch them together in a way that makes vaguely cohesive sense, you can have a pretty good life. Vaguely cohesive. I keep telling you, Lars, there's this infinite landscape called the CNCF landscape. Kubernetes is, is a small speck on it. <laughs> so if you get bored easily, I have the antidote, the perfect antidote for that. An endless sea of things to play with. Oh, yes. Endless combinations. But I'd have to learn Go. <laughs> not necessarily. Carehart doesn't know Go much. You know a little bit, but not much. No, I don't. No. You wrote a little Go program, didn't you, Carehart? I did. I wrote quite a few. I, I, so this has been so long, by the way, when I was writing Go, that I forgot it. And now I'm remembering it again. That's how long it's been. Mm. I think it was 2016, 2017. We were writing some LoRa. That's like a protocol for IoT devices. Okay. And it was like a LoRa bridge. So that was fun. Cloud Foundry. There was some go there. But just enough. So I didn't go crazy on it. And the Dagger, there's more go. Not a crazy amount because there's an endless sea of possibilities I could be doing. And people with experience, they wish they could code. <laughs> but they don't have the luxury, do they? That's such a small part of what they do. But uh, yeah, I mean, if I had to choose between Go and Elixir, it'd be very tough. I like both. I wouldn't mind learning Go, but it's not where my focus is right now. I'm plenty busy in the Elixir space and it's a smaller pond, which makes it easier to know the people, which I like. Right. So that I, I, I can see almost a contradiction there. You're like, you get bored easily, but you like small ponds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be amazing. So let's get to it. What is the most significant thing that we shipped? And because it was Jared's PR, I'll let him tell us about it. Yes, it was me. You did it. Although the heavy lift was by Lars and I did the glue code, which is kind of... And the QA. <laughs> and the QA, which is part of, which is important, right? <laughs> Very. The biggest thing that we shipped since our last Kaizen is chapters. And we've shipped chapters everywhere to all the places. I can't remember when we recorded if we had it shipped partially or not at all, but it rolled out in phases. The first step with chapters was to be able to input them in our admin and store them in our database. And we did that first. And then once we had them, we could then emit them in certain places. And the first place we admitted them is on the episode details page underneath the show notes. And because our on-site player is already 
deep linkable with timestamps and stuff, we could make those clickable and jump around to the different areas of the episode on the website. Mm. That's not the end goal. That was just the easiest place to get them. Once I had them there, we then also decided, well, let's put them in our new episode notification email, because why not? Because sometimes a chapter will actually entice you to give it a listen. And you're like, oh, what? they talked about this? Cool. I'll click on that directly. So maybe you're getting the notification email, don't have much time, see the chapters, and are interested. So I put them there as well. And then the third place we put them is in our RSS feeds using the new podcasting 2.0 namespace. So we have RSS-based chaptering Mm. as well, but that's somewhat insignificant because barely anybody is using that tag in their apps, except for the brand new shiny podcasting 2.0 apps. And the final place we put them in the big one and the hardest one was actually in our MP3 ID3 tags so that all the podcast apps now, if you're listening on a podcast app that supports chapters, of which most of the better ones do, there are some that do not, you can see that there's a chapter right there. We're inside a chapter right now and you can <laughs> you can click on it. This chapter is called, we're in a chapter, maybe, <laughs> if our chaptering nerds get it right. Great idea. <laughs> I love it. So there it is. It's right there in your podcast app. Thanks to a little bit of glue code by me, but mostly Lars helping us build a, an ID3 VX, which the big one being version 2.3 in our case, library for Elixir so we could actually ditch our FFmpeg dependency and directly write our ID3 tags in Elixir land with support for chapters, which is a complex spec, I believe. Mm -hmm. But I didn't have to care because Lars had to care. Wait, 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 wait. So do you mean that we can remove FFmpeg from our container image now? We absolutely can. We are using it for zero things. Isn't that yes, cool? baby. That is super cool. All right, so our container images just got 300 megabytes smaller or more. Yeah. Okay, that is really cool. Now Gerhard's <laughs> excited. Yeah, wow, that is, wow. One less dependency is cool. Oh, yes. I think our only dependency that's not Elixir slash Erlang now, and obviously database stuff, is probably image magic. Yes. Okay. That's the next one. That's the next frontier. But before we go there, <laughs> Lars. That would be a bigger project. <laughs> that was a bigger one. All right. So why was IDVX such a big deal? So the ID3 standard, like if you've done anything with MP3 since like the 90s or whenever those showed up, you've probably modified an ID3 tag at some point because the title or the artist was wrong. And that was started with ID3. Well, it was just ID3, and then they released the version 2, so that became ID3 version 1. And ID3 version 2 is a fairly flexible metadata format, and it can be used for other things than MP3s. It can be used for essentially any file, and you just prefix it to the file, and as long as the file parser doesn't choke on having some random binary data in front, uh, you can use it. So it's a tight binary format, and that means you have to follow a spec very closely. And that's sort of what turns it into a project. It's not your average JSON parsing thing where it's like, oh, it's going to be some JSON in there. I throw it into a JSON parser and I get out structured data. But rather, it's incredibly specific. So you have this little header. You have a number of frames that they call them. So for example, title one, title two, and title three are all frames. Album is a frame. Publisher, I believe, is a frame. There are a ton of frames. Uh, Very few of them are actually used. And then at some point, someone released a specification for chapters in ID3. And chapters are frames which can contain frames because with a chapter, you might want to include title, link, images. Uh, So the chapter spec isn't much more complicated than anything else in ID3. Mm -hmm. Right. And the ID3 spec isn't all that complicated. One of the most challenging bits about it is that it's sometimes not that precise. (laughs) Sometimes it's a bit vague, and sometimes the clients are very particular, which we discovered as we were were trying things. But Elixir is pretty well suited to mangling binary data, so much of the part that can be annoying was pretty easily solved. Then it was a matter of of implementing a ton of frames and and, uh, making sure it actually worked, which was the harder part. 
So what you're telling me, or at least what I'm hearing, is that shipping it was difficult. Because once you ship it, that's when the actual complications start, when you realize, oh, hang on, <laughs> my understanding of this thing is different than some of the players. So which ones were particularly difficult to deal with? Do you remember? I know you, I know you do. So our first stab, I essentially implemented blindly. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote some tests but both of both the implementation and the test was based on the spec, so I'm just testing whether I can read the spec the same way twice, which it's is... important. <laughs> At least you can tick that box. Yes, I got it right. I got it right twice, or I got it wrong twice. I know that much. Mm -hmm. But then we started using there's a command line tool called ID3v2, which can list frames and it supports most frames, which meant we could start checking some of our work and we discovered some issues there. It's like, oh, we encoded this wrong. Oh, this should be a double null, not a single null, silly binary. And then we started looking at FFmpeg because that can actually parse chapter frames. So we could actually list the contents of those. And that's probably where much of the trouble started because it was choking on a number of different things and it went down to deep, deep rabbit holes. And in the end, Working through those probably improved the code of the library significantly. So, so that was all good. And then we got to the actual podcast players. A little harder to test with those, right? Yeah, the the loop wasn't very tight there because with FFmpeg, I mean, it can be annoying to install sometimes, but it's no problem to shell out to it and check the output to see if you wrote a correct file. But when you're doing it with Overcast or Pocketcast, which were the ones I've we had to get working first. And once those were working, everything else has worked. But both of those thankfully have a way of uh, loading files, sort of side-loading them, manually loading files in, and they do parse the ID3 tags when you do that. But I mean, getting a file, an MP3 file, to an iPhone to actually test is not very convenient. And uh, that whole process and figuring out what the actual issue is, thankfully, for this sort of mainstream chapter support, there are podcasts that we know have chapters that work. So in the end, I think we used Accidental Tech Podcast a fair bit. And at some point I was pulling their data, pulling their entire file, parsing the entire file with our library, and then writing the entire file with our library and checking, like, oh, the chapters don't have links for some reason. Why don't they have links? Because they used to. And then... Compare binary byte by byte until you find the difference. The fun stuff. And in, the, in that particular case, they only accepted comments that were in ISO 88591 encoding. That's not the spec, <laughs> but that's what they did. So we had to comply with that. So we had to default to that. And in PocketCost's case, there was a, an extra trailing, or there was a trailing null missing in the table of contents and that tripped us up and the chapters just didn't show up at all um, so those were probably two of the more challenging ones but it's cool i haven't had reason to sort of dig through binary byte by byte in this way very often okay so the library is out on hexpm id3vx and it's also the source code is on uh, lars's repo for now, it's still on mine. It's going to move over to changelog as Jared takes on the maintenance burden, I hear. Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> Happy to close issues. Won't fix, won't fix, won't fix. We know a thing or two about that. Okay, that's coming up a bit later. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Jared has committed to just implementing ID3v2.4. I think that's what he said. No comment. I didn't hear that. <laughs> I'll implement every frame of ID3v4 that or v2.4, whatever it is, that we care about, that we that we use here at ChangeLog. I will do that. Yes. Yeah. I'll also give some credit to one of my consultants. So I run a small consultancy. I can't call myself a freelancer anymore because I have four employees doing software development. But one of them was on the bench for a bit. And when this came along, uh, he could jump in to help. So he's been doing a bunch of implementing of the frames that we didn't critically need for this but that are nice to have for a sort of well-rounded implementation. The ones that no one uses to a large extent, but 
but it's nice to have them there properly implemented. Uh, not tested because there are no real reference implementations to test against <laughs> because no one uses these frames. Yeah, but credit to McBool who's on my team and has been chugging away at these encodings and parsings. Thank you very much. Do you say McBool? McBool, yeah. McBool. And we still have a few of his pull requests to merge before we shift it over to the changelog org, I figure. And for all the X pivots, on the bench means on the beach. Oh. <laughs> That's like a yeah, like a thing. Like when you're on the beach, then you know you're not like on any assignments, you're you're a consultant, but you're on the beach and you're having fun. So McBool was on the beach having fun with ID3VX. <laughs> That sounds amazing. So pull request 417, you can check it out in changelog. That's when Jared merged it. And I know that a couple of things happened afterwards. What's the first thing, Jared, that surprised you after you got it out? I don't think it worked. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't think it worked. <laughs> it didn't work right away. Ship it and see what happens. The first thing that surprised me, I believe, was that we were using a function that ex an elixir function that existed in my local version that did not exist in prod which was we had a development production mismatch all too common mm -hmm. where the the map module got some nice new functions in elixir 1.13 and i was using them in our new chaptering code specifically using them in the rss feed generation code not in the actual tagging code where I was only including the values uh, in the JSON feed of the chapters that had data. And so I was rejecting a bunch of key value pairs. And that doesn't exist in Elixir 1.12, which is what was running in production. So we had all the tests passed. CI failed, I think. I think CI also had 1.12, so it didn't roll out. I think it wouldn't roll out, which is nice. Better than it rolling out and not working. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but it still wouldn't work because I pushed the code and it wouldn't do things. So then I was like, hey, Gerhard, <laughs> remind me, how do we do this thing where, what, what I would love to have is just like one place in the code where I change a 12 to a 13 and then put, commit that and push it out. But mm -hmm. almost as good as having a nice documentation on, on how to do it. So we had to upgrade Elixir, which had another ramification, by the way, which I will tell you if you want to know about after you respond to this, because this was something that you upgraded all the things mm -hmm. in response. That's it. This was pull request 423. You mentioned something very important, Jerry. This was like in our Slack messages. Uh, this is in dev. So you basically do just-in-time development, and that's exactly what I did with this. So I was thinking a couple of months back, shall I upgrade these things? Say, no, no, you know, it's like not important enough. I, I don't want to be doing busy work. You know, when it's important, I will know about it. So I did. Jared told me, hey, <laughs> we need this upgrade. And we had a make target that was showing and it was like an interactive, like step-by-step -step what to do. But that wasn't in the most convenient place. So now it's in the readme. You can check it out. It's already been merged, pull request 423. So the image that we use, because it's it goes out as a container, it's the HexPM Elixir. And I think I did that with you, Lars, or was it with Alex? I can't remember. Either you or Alex. Probably Alex. Okay, because I left the comment. So one of you recommended, hey, why are you using this base image and not the other one? So we switched. So once you pick Elixir, you also have to pick the version of Erlang. So I thought, well, I was 24. Let's go to the latest Erlang version. And I was thinking, well, hang on, this was using Ubuntu Trusty. Whoops. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, Erlang will come back. Erlang will come back. And uh, also like, hey, let's change like the base operating system. Let's go to Ubuntu Jammy 2204, the, the last LTS. So we did that as well. While at it, I was saying, hang on, this Node.js version could be upgraded. So why don't I do that? And oh, by the way, this PostgreSQL, the one in production, it differs to the one. So before you know it, I literally <laughs> upgraded all the things. <laughs> by the way, if you're not prepared to deal with the aftermath, you shouldn't be doing this, okay? Right. I was ready. I was like, okay, whatever's going to happen, I'm here, I can take it on. So nothing happened. Well, almost nothing. Jared? It took us a little while to notice what had happened, but there is a bug in OTP Elixir in Erlang 24.3.4.3.4. Yeah. I checked. You checked. Did you see I left, mm -hmm. a, I left a link to it in the code? I did. 
I also commented on the pull request. The pull request is 6241. It's actually, it's an issue. Erlang OTP issue 6241. Oh, okay. You commented on that one. Yeah. Cool. Angela was uh, kind enough five hours ago to solve it and mark it for, yeah. So it, this will be out in 24.3.4.5. I checked uh, MyTech if, because he's the one that reported it. Hey, MyTech, uh, did the fix work for you? Wojtek Mark. That's what I meant by MyTech. And 30 minutes ago, as we are recording this, he confirmed the fix works. So this is a live. Thank you very much, Wojtek. And as soon as there is an image that we can use, we will get it straight into prod. Right. Right now I implemented a workaround, not sufficiently enough. So the problem happening there is a TLS bug in the SSL. What do you call an Erlang, uh, Lars? Is it, are they packages? It's like the colon SSL namespace, I don't know, modules maybe? Yes, it's a module. So, right, so Elixir is using Erlang's SSL module, and on this latest version, there's something with TLS certs, and certain HTTPS requests fail. They error out, whereas they previously warned. And you can turn it off at some weird compatibility check or something. I don't even totally understand it. But it caused a few things that we would fetch to fail, uh, one of which is the transcripts from GitHub. They are not fetching. And the other one is when we would go and download stuff in order to put it into the ID3 tags. So one of the things we had to do is add the cover art in the ID3 tag to each episode. And so to do that, we just fetch it off of Fastly and shove it in there. But our requests to Fastly were failing and our requests to GitHub were failing because of the way they implement HTTPS. Now, it's not every domain. It's like it's dependent upon whatever they've configured their TLS environment to do on the server side. So it's not like all of our requests were failing, but just those two. And so, you know, you start furiously. I have, I have to push some code up right now to fix the GitHub one because the transcripts are not pulling in right now. So there's kind of a, this is, the, this is the second time this has happened with OTP, specifically in the SSL stuff, where it's like, maybe we do better to stay a little bit behind the curve on Erlang. I don't know. I feel like I'm going to put a smoke test in that just says we can make HTTPS requests and like actually hit Fastly in our test suite because that would be a thing that would fail if we upgrade Erlang and that breaks it and it would cause us not to deploy or something. Because I wouldn't have known about it if I didn't notice the side effects. I want to know about it immediately, not when there's symptoms, but I found out via, via symptoms this time. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. With the launch of their Code Insights product, teams can now track what really matters in their code base. Code Insights instantly transforms your code base into a queryable database to create visual dashboards in seconds. And I'm here with Joel Kortler, the product manager of Code Insights for Sourcegraph. Joel, the way teams can use Code Insights seems to pretty much be limitless, but a particular problem every engineering team has is tracking versions of languages or packages. How big of a deal is it actually to track versions for teams? Yeah, it's a big deal for a couple of reasons. The first is, of course, just compatibility. You don't want things to break when you're testing locally or to break on your CI systems or test systems. You need to have some sort of level of like version unification and minimum version supported, and all of that needs to be you know, compatible forward. But the other thing we learned was that for a lot of customers, especially you know engineering organizations that are pretty established, they have older versions of things or even older versions of like SaaS tools they don't use anymore that they haven't fully removed because they're like not sure if it's still in use or they you know lost focus on that. And they're spinning up old virtual machines that they're still paying for. Or they're using you know old SaaS subscriptions they're afraid to cancel because they're not sure if anyone's actually using it. And so getting off of those versions not just like saves you the headaches and the risks and the vulnerabilities of being on old versions, but also literally the money of you know, older systems running more slowly or the build times or, you know, virtual machines and SaaS tools that you're no longer using. Before you had this ability, we talked to teams, there are basically three ways you could do this. You could slack a million people and ask for just like an update point in time. You could have sort of one human and one spreadsheet where like it's somebody's job every Friday or every two weeks to just like search all the code and find all the versions and write it down in a Google sheet. 
Or there were a couple of companies that I came across with in-house systems that were sort of complicated. You had to know, you know, maybe Kotlin, but you didn't know Kotlin. But if you wanted to use the system, you had to learn Kotlin and you'd have to sort of build the whole world from scratch and run basically a tool like this with a pretty steep learning curve. And now for all three of those, you could replace it with a single line sourcecraft search, which is basically just the name of the thing you're trying to track and the version string in the right format. And then we have templates that'll help you get started if you're not sure what that format is. And then it'll automatically track all the different versions for you, both historically. So even if you start using it today, you can see your historical patterns. And then of course, going forward. Very cool. Thank you, Joel. So right now there is a treasure trove of insights just waiting for you living inside your code base right now. Teams are tracking migrations, adoption, deprecations. They're detecting and tracking versions of languages and packages. They're removing or ensuring the removal of security vulnerabilities. They understand their code by team. They can track their code smells and health, and they can visualize configurations and services and so much more with Code Insights. A good next step is to go to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. See how other teams are using this awesome feature. Again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link is in the show notes. So after all my years on the RabbitMQ team, I can tell you that SSL is one of the hardest things in Aramaic. Hardest. Not just when it comes to outbound connections, but also when it comes to internode. Internode communication can be very, very difficult because of SSL. And it has to do with the protocols, with the ciphers, sometimes with what is on the host. It's a never-ending pool of problems. Ingela. Ingela. She's been on the OTP team. Ingela. Thank you, Lars. See? I believe it, it's a Swedish name. Often is with the Erlang team. It is a Swedish name because of Ericsson. It's the Ericsson team. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, she's been um, dealing with all these issues, SSL issues in, in Erlang for years, as long as I can remember. And I can tell you that she's doing an amazing job, but this stuff is really, really hard. And... Briefly, whenever I was I used to talk to Loic Hogwin of Cowboy, of uh, there's one more. Uh, what is the other one? Cowboy. The Ranch. Ranch. Thank you. Thank you, Lars. I forgot. That's it. So, I mean, these are very popular TCP libraries and web servers in, in the Erlang ecosystem that everyone uses, including Phoenix. They're everywhere. This stuff, these protocols are incredibly hard to get right. So, if Lars, if IDV3X was difficult, this is like, to the power of 10 sort of thing difficult. It's unbelievable what is out there. This was a month or two difficult. Um, yeah, I think I think Ingela is still on it 10 years later, something like that. You know, it's really hard and it keeps changing all the time. Yeah, and Erlang, Erlang has this ambition of not relying overly on OpenSSL these days. Mm-hmm. That's right. And as part of that, they implement a fair bit on their own. I was going to say, maybe they should... Change on that. It seems like they have. Well, OpenSSL hasn't exactly been without fail in other regards along the way. And OpenSSL is a super tricky dependency overall. It causes a lot of install problems, which are not runtime problems. Well, I can tell you that we were using it in there with in RabbitMQ, the Erlang. I, I remember that was like one of the very important dependencies to get right. You can you don't have to use it, but then that just like opens up a whole set of other problems. So just to wrap this whole chapter up, it's a hard problem. It's amazing, Jared, that you found it. And yes, we need those smoke tests. Very important. Because sometimes regressions, sometimes they're introduced. There's a couple of major Erlang versions uh, that are being actively maintained at any given point in time. And sometimes like new specs get introduced and new code gets introduced and sometimes things just misbehave. And you need to run this stuff in production to see it's not obvious. Mm-hmm. I want to bring up a backstory to this. Do you remember, Jared, how long we've wanted this feature? Yes. I know you do. Yes. Yes. So far back, we almost hired Jose Valim to help us with this Elixir ID3VX, which thank you so much, Lars, for all your hard work on this. But like, yeah. this goes back so far, right? Jose said, you have to talk to Lars Wickman. You know, I'm just kidding. That's what he said. <laughs> it goes back so far. Well, so... Uh, first, I was going to do it myself, and then I read the spec, and I'm like, it's a lot of work. 
this is not my expertise. It's almost, it's a little bit deeper than I usually go. I'm an application developer more than a library author. And I told Adam, like, I could probably do it, but like there's unknowns there and it would take a long time. And we know how much time I have to spend on the coding. Then we reach out to Platforma Tech back when Jose was with them or back before it was sold to the other company or whatever and spoke with them about maybe contracting them to build it. And then we spoke with Jose directly, I think after he was there when he had left or he, they had sold it. And I think he even pair programmed with me for like 15 minutes one time. Like, you know, Jose, he's so smart and so fast and he's just like, oh, just do this. And he's like, got some stuff going and he's like, you should be on your way. And I was like, but whoa, hold on, slow down, come back, write uh, <laughs> the, the rest. <laughs> Right. Where's the rest? Slow down. Come back. We have cash. Yeah, we have cash. And so, yeah, Adam. And then we just kind of sat on it for a couple of years, you know, because there were just like other things. It's very flattering that I got to be the stand in for Jose. You were the next. You were the yeah. replacement for Jose. It's just interesting when you ship a feature like this, how much story is behind it. There's a desire for a certain feature. Obviously, we've been in podcasting for a very long time. So, chapters are pretty important. Client support wasn't always there. So the thrust was there for our desire, but it wasn't there in support in ending clients. So I think Apple Podcasts may have begun support about a year or so ago, maybe. But like the major player supporting was Marco's app, what is it called? Overcast. That was like the main one I saw have support for it, really. Yeah, for a long time, that was like the main one. And it was kind of like not worth it for just that one, even though it was the app that I used. And so I wanted it. I've wanted this feature for so long. There's also a whole production workflow side of this that we're not talking about, about actually getting the chapters in there. A lot of change. That yeah. we could speak to, because that had to be a thing that we figured out along the way. And so there's lots of like reasons why we didn't do it. But then, like you said, Adam, once Apple Podcasts added it, and by the way, their support is terrible. Like you scroll to the bottom of the details and there's a chapters thing and you click on it and it expands. It's not integrated. It's, it's their app's terrible yeah. in general, but... Overcast supports it, Pocket Casts, Castro, like all of a sudden, like most of the indie good podcast apps now, they're going to have that support. So it made it more worth it for us to finally do. Even Overcast is kind of hidden. It's kind of like subtly introduced now in, in like the side button whenever you're playing it. Like it's, it's also not quite like in your face. I, th I feel like it's a missing ingredient for clients to better support visually the user experience that chapters provide because you could jump around a show very well and like you're in a chapter right now by the way as you know but i think that's just such an interesting is like the backstory to a feature all the details that go into it the you know in particular to this one the workflow changes on the production side the ui changes on the front end of the, of the application whether it's our our site or the client just a lot of things go into just a, a little desire like can we just have chapters this is a feature, by the way, that has been requested by zero of our listeners. <laughs> zero. That's true. No one's ever, maybe you, Gerhard. No, 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 not me. Someone that I know. He keeps saying, Sam, I won't give the surname away. Sam said, hey, can I have a short version? Oh, that's right. The short version guy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the short version person. Short yes. Version. <laughs> and now he has chapters. I say, okay, Sam, we can't give you short versions. We can chop it However, up However, we you. can give you chapters. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think chapters is one of those features that you don't think about much until you have them. And it, it, once you do, especially if you have shows where you're interested in a lot of what they talk about, but not everything they talk about. And hey, we're realistic. We realize maybe you're not interested in chapters. Maybe you skip this whole episode because you're like, oh, is this the chapter one? Don't care. Only the last part. No, only yeah. the last part. Everything else <laughs> they've listened yeah. to. <laughs> but once you get used to listening that way and hopping around and seeing what they talk about when and saying, oh, you know what? I care about this topic. I'm going to go right to it and get that eight minutes. Once you have it, I think it's the way to listen to podcasts. And so I've, even though no one's requested except for Sam in a roundabout way, Adam and I have wanted this for years. So sometimes you do things because it's going to make it better, not because people are asking you for it. Lars, you were going to say something earlier? I was just going to say that I think Pocket Casts actually does a good job of surfacing chapters. It's on the playing screen. You can just hit a separate arrow and sort of skip to the next one or easily expand the whole list. I was surprised to learn, I don't use Overcast normally because I've been switching back and forth between Android and iOS, that it was that discreet. <laughs> oh, oh, there's a small button here when I've hit it right. Okay. So when debugging, it was like, oh, that button is good. Right. My heart is filling up now 
because I have a history of holding things wrong. And I thought, I'm the only one that can't find it, damn it. What is going on here? Yeah, <laughs> so you confirming it, Lar I was oh, That was exactly my thought. Like, where are where is this chapter support? I know we have it, because right. Lars and Jared says we do, but where is it? <laughs> it's in pocket costs. In Overcast, there's a swipe gesture. Like you swipe one way to get to the advanced settings and swipe the other way off the album art to get to the show notes. And then if you just swipe again, there's all your chapters. It is subtle. And then there's also that okay. little icon. Can you tell that I'm not using Tinder? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This is why big business, how it works. I don't know how to go left or right. It's just straight ahead. That's it. <laughs> Well, it also lives in like this little kind of three-lined circle icon yes. next to the play, I guess the playhead slash timeline of the of the show. It's This is a missing ingredient. I almost wonder like is the reason why it's less supportive is because less people are doing it because it does take a tremendous amount of work to plan for production-wise, actually name these things. And if you have two shows like us, like we have the plus-plus version, the time moves – Right. From the same show has two different versions. It's it's challenging. We chapter it twice. Yeah, so very few podcasts do it. And so that doesn't give the emphasis to the podcast apps to support it. But also the shows don't do it because the apps don't support it. So it's kind of a chicken and an egg. Yeah. But there are certain shows who do it reliably. And once you have it with those shows, you just appreciate it. And we like the TLC and sweat the details. Like we want our shows to be as good as they can be. And so if that chap, even though not that many people use it, if we can do it, we wanted to do it. So that's maybe why the UIs aren't so like up front and center because most podcasts don't have it anyway. So why would you put something up front and center that most shows don't have? I don't know. It's a tough problem. Yeah. It's kind of like a media queries with CSS. You know, if you're on a certain viewport or for certain features there, you should, you should change your UI accordingly. You know, like because chapters are in this thing, you can have a much more rich user experience because you give the opportunity for, for the listener to enjoy the thing more because you could jump around. Check out Pocket Casts. Lars says that they do a good job. I'm going to try it out. I haven't tried that one yet. So I'm gonna, I was on Castro and Overcast and I've, I've recently gone from Castro to Overcast back again, you know? So we'll see. Castro's is pretty cool because it puts the name of the current chapter right there in the middle. And if you click on that name, it pulls up the whole deal. Yeah. So it's kind of a little bit more front and center. They all have their different decisions they make, you know? We're still at pull request 423, if you're still following along. And um, in that pull request, the other very interesting thing which happened is that even though everything worked, this was the upgrade, remember Elixir, Erlang, the base image, a couple of other things. For some reason, the builds in CircleCI stopped working. The container image specifically was failing to build. Now, pick your battles. I keep getting reminded this, or this week in particular, I was reminded a couple of times. And the easiest thing was just to remove it. So that means is that we are no longer building a circle CI. It's just GitHub Actions via Dagger. And while they do exactly the same thing, it just goes to show that one works, the other one doesn't, even though not much has changed. I'm going to drop a link in the show notes in case no anyone's interested to have a look at that. But for us, again, the easiest thing was just to remove the circle CI integration. So now we have lost our CI redundancy. Mm -hmm. I'll say this is going against your maxim of two of everything. I know. N plus X. Right? No, N plus one. <laughs> it's just N plus one. <laughs> Easy to please, <laughs> relatively. <laughs> well, I don't know how you feel about your routers slash routers. I mean, mm -hmm. How many of those got a lot around these days? But well, I think you had like two routers at one well, point or three. There is an episode coming about that because I have one more. <laughs> Seriously, he has officially see, two wasn't enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he has actually... officially graduated from two is one, one is none, to three is two. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, two is that's one, where I am. one is none. Oh my gosh! But they're just the rooters, so that's okay. And anyways, he's crying um, again. He's crying. It wouldn't be a Kaizen if Gerhard didn't cry. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's just hot here. So it, get, it gets hot. <laughs> Still summer, damn it. <laughs> cutting some onions. All cutting right. Onions. So how many CI do you need? I think, you, I think you need at least two. Seriously. Like you need two just in case one stops working and you want to get to fix out. Now, we do have Dagger running locally. So you could, in theory, push it out if you wanted to. Not everything because the fly integration hasn't been done yet with, with Dagger, but that's coming. There's also a big change coming in Dagger, but um, there is, an, again, a future episode reserved for that when we're ready to make it public. So I've been just delaying 
that specific migration to maybe Christmas. We'll see. I think it's going to be going to become an annual thing. But talking of Fly and all these integrations, another thing which stopped working was the WireGuard tunnel in GitHub Actions. I don't know why. There's a pull request 421. Easiest thing was just like to delete it and recreate it. Nothing else changed. For some reason, in GitHub Actions, the WireGuard tunnel would just not connect, would not establish. I don't know why. A mystery. I think we should leave it to that. Because there's something that Adam shipped. And if you're surprised, Adam, <laughs> that's because Jared shipped it on your behalf. Yeah. So what did Jared ship on Adam's behalf, like a boss, Ooh. straight into master? <laughs> <laughs> so what, I don't even know what this is. Like a boss. The sponsors. Oh, I updated our footer for you, Adam. That was Adam's to-do list on the last Kaizen. Mm -hmm. Was it on my the last Kaizen? Well, the one before the last one. Gosh. I think, because you weren't here for the last Kaizen. Yeah. Sadness. Good job, though. Like a boss, you got it done before Kaizen 70. Mm -hmm. Nice. Thank you, Jared. So what does the footer say, Adam? Who are our sponsors' partners officially? Uh, Well, we now have Fastly, and we now have Fly. So... Mm. Those are our two primary infrastructure partners. Very excited. Fastly loves us. And uh, we do some fun stuff with Fly. In fact, I just had a conversation yesterday with Brad Gessler. He's in charge of the Rails and Ruby parts. Or not in charge, of, but leading a lot of the stuff happening on the Rails and Ruby front for Fly. A lot of fun stuff. I had a conversation recently with Chris McCord talking about just the fact that you, know, you could put your application anywhere in the world. Uh, Brad called it, he said, you'd have to have a PhD to put your application in regions before. That's how much, you'd have to have a PhD in ops. Whereas we make it a one-liner and we do all the hard work for you behind the scenes. I just love that. And even back to Lars with your conversation with him on episode seven and this argument, so to speak, on like Kubernetes, just again to justify this, we never used Kubernetes because we needed it. It's because we wanted to play and have fun and learn and share that knowledge so I think that, you know, that whole roundabout and those two partners are pretty core for us. So kind of fun to really see Fly come to fruition as you've been watching it and then actually become a user of it and how it's benefited us. So it's been nice. Pull request 418, where we now notifying Slack when a deploy succeeds. This is one of Jerry's wishes last time, and we got it out there. And I've noticed that a bunch of people left since we did that. And others were asking about bots, whether that channel is going to be overruled by bots. And I think it has to do with my very long commit messages. <laughs> because we because we post them, so it's my fault, okay? Not just, not just for enabling the feature, but also for writing very long and verbose commit messages. So what are we thinking about that? I don't think it's about your commit messages. I think it's about the low... Lars, you're coming back. Thank you very much. Keep going. Ah. <laughs> Uh, I don't think it's about your long commit messages. I think it's that that particular channel has been very quiet and now the major contributor is a bot. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And people hop in that channel and don't really know that it's about changelog.com dev. Like they just think it's about development. Well, it's like everything we do is about development. So it'd be weird to have like, here's where we talk about development channel. Mm -hmm. But we haven't done a good job of using that channel for our discussion because we do have a private dev team which was private not because we want to be private just because there are aspects of things that you share with a few that you don't want to share like keys and and yeah embarrassing we don't do that Jared, whatever no. it is we never we never did that over slack what mm -hmm. share share some keys exactly secrets we never do that well they delete them after 90 days right so we're good <laughs> Yeah, right, we're good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 90 days you have exposure and then you're just good to go now. So it's kind of a feature of Slack more than a... Mm -hmm. You know, they hide your messages. If we could just get them to delete them for us, that would be great. <laughs> there are things that are private, but we end up just saying everything in there. Yeah. And so that makes the dev channel look like a ghost town and then a bot starts posting. And so we just had a re reconcerted effort to like, if it's not actually private mm -hmm. or sensitive, put it in the public dev channel. Let's just talk there. And since we started doing that, I feel like the that bot that posts the new deploys has been less of an annoyance and more just like what you would expect as people are working on things. So I'm also cool with people leaving if like they don't want they're not interested in this topic of like that's what Slack's about. Like join channels, leave channels. No nope. mm -hmm. doesn't hurt my feelings when someone pops out. Mm -hmm. I don't like your long commit messages though. No, I'm just kidding. 
No, I know you don't. I'm going to stop that business. <laughs> like, dude, I'm going to explain I why I do things. I'm going to stop this bet. It's like every time Gerhard ships something, there's a book. Yeah. I, you ship two things. You ship the feature and you ship a commit message. Which is usually longer than the actual feature. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I have to explain the why. Why did I do that? Good git commits is just stuck with me forever. I was going to say, I, I kind of appreciate that to some degree. I mean, it is verbose, but if you're in there, your commits are so readable. Uh, even at length, whereas like if you are curious, it's like, well, you have it all there. You don't have to like click through to it. So if you wanted to sort of see some of your logic, but I can also see the flip side where it's like, you know what, if it's just a bunch of bots, I'm not, I'm not going to be here. But Jared's sentiment is fine as well. Like if, if that channel isn't for somebody, they shouldn't hang in there. And that's cool too. Mm. I think the balanced move is like, let the bot put the content in. But you know, the first line of a commit message is, a message is the summary and then you're to skip a line and go into the details right like that's the convention for good commit messages so what we really want to know is something just got deployed and the high level of what it is and then click through for the details so i think the move is just do the first line truncate the rest obviously the commit already has a link to it so people who are interested and they want to read gerhard's full story book. can click through mm -hmm. the full book yeah so if you can get that done i think that's the move because I do want to know when stuff is live. I think that's a good improvement. Uh, the integration which we choose, it's from the GitHub Marketplace. I don't think it has that option when I checked, but I'm going to go look again. And by the way, that has to improve regardless because I can't run it locally. And for me, it's a big deal. I wish I could be able to run a deploy locally, check that everything works, including the Slack integration and all that stuff. Right now, I have to commit and push to GitHub to see how it works in practice. That is not great, but that is a topic for another day. This episode is brought to you by Flatfile, the leading data onboarding platform for teams who don't want to build yet another CSV uploader. Think of the last time you had to import data from a spreadsheet. You probably got some weird errors. You had to try a bunch of things like removing blank titles from rows and column headers. You probably had to find and replace special characters. You might even had to reach for Google to remind yourself yet again how to save with UTF-8 encoding. Here's the thing. You're just trying to get your file where it needs to go so you can do the thing you're trying to do in the first place. And your customers run into this same issue when it matters most, right after signing up for your product and getting started. The thing you're building, the product, is brought to life by data, your customer's data, the data they recognize, and every minute they spend trying to fix a spreadsheet, just like you were doing, is one minute less seeing the magic of the product, the thing you're building, the thing they just bought, and they're so excited to use. Now, companies of all sizes struggle with this issue. They don't realize that there's a solution out there, and they've accepted this as par for the course, optimizing for other ways to improve the customer experience. Some go as far as creating downloadable CSV templates and building their own in-house file importer. Then they send their customers to a lengthy knowledge base article on how to use it, and it just circumvents the entire process of getting started. Enter Flatfile. Flatfile is the data onboarding platform built to take the acute pain out of importing customer data into your product. With Flatfile, your product's experience is world-class on day one. It's built to handle everything from data mapping, field validation, and is meticulously designed to blend right into your platform. It turns a frustrating process for everyone into a delightful first experience for your customers. Flatfile is SOC 2 Type 1 and Type 2 certified, GDPR compliant, and even HIPAA compliant. This ensures no matter where customers are in the world, they're sharing data securely and in compliance every step of the way. The next step is to learn more and check them out at flatfile.com. Again, flatfile.com. Let me ask you a question on this front though real quick. Sure. In terms of this, it, who is this useful to? These deployments slash commit messages. This, this GitHub Actions app, you know, throwing this information in there. Who is... Who is it useful to? It's useful to me. Is it useful to anyone besides whom's here or anybody who's working with us? Or is it to be, I mean, you can go recommit messages on GitHub if you want to recommit messages, right? Right. So the messages only appear when the commit has gone out in production. Mm. The last line 
even says shipped to changelog.com. Mm -hmm. So that commit is live. We only publish a commit. It's a shipment notification. Exactly. When the code, when the change is live in production, it doesn't happen before. I mean, I almost wonder if this is a dev team thing, if it's only useful to us. I think it's useful to anybody who's interested in the ongoing development of changelog.com. Like if you're interested in the way the stuff we're working on, maybe you're a user of the website, you want to see when something new, mm -hmm. I can go check it out in the browser. And you're like participating in what we're working on, which I think we want more than just the four of us or the five doing that. Then I think that, that it's useful to you. It offers some discoverability of activity, like, oh, there are things happening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. We don't have to announce anything. It's, it's our announcement. Gotcha. I think there's just like a small improvement that we can make to make it better, for sure. I think as a feature, it's useful. Maybe if it was maybe a bit more condensed, maybe right now it can be a bit verbose, especially when I write commit messages or when there's a large commit message that gets squashed and merged, then you have five or six commits going as one and then it can be a bit too much. So in the spirit of Kaizen, we know exactly what to do for the next one. One other thing that I want to mention part of this is that Marcos Niels, uh, I work with him and uh, he was on paternity leave and he was basically getting all the latest news, even before changelog news got them. And the second the SSH commit verification was announced as a GitHub feature, he said, hey, this is amazing. It's out there. Gerhard, I know you're using GPG keys. Don't. <laughs> this is so much better. So part of this commit, what I did, I, I switched to signing my Git commits with SSH keys and it worked very smoothly. So I can recommend to everyone listening to this to maybe do that switch. It's a lot easier than uh, using GPG keys. I've been using them for a very long time to verify my messages, and I'm really enjoying the new SSH integration. Lars, where do you stand on that? Haven't bothered at all with any of it. Man, I don't know what to say to you. Like, contradiction again? Like GDPR security and you're not bothering about this? How do we know that your commit is your commit? <laughs> what does that have to do with the privacy of data? Well, security, how do we know that your commit is your commit? How do we know that you is you? <laughs> well, you can ask. No, uh, I haven't dug into that. I don't... I can't ask a commit message. Hey, commit message, did Lars write you? <laughs> God. No, no, I haven't dug into that at all. Uh, I'm going to call it pragmatism, but it's also most of my work uh, doesn't touch a lot of things where you need sort of software bill of materials and a lot of supply chain security. Mm -hmm. I'm typically at smaller scale and smaller projects, but... If it's convenient, I don't see why not. I think so. Okay, I haven't convinced you with Kubernetes, but maybe this will be different. We'll see. Jared, where do you stand? Do you remember our SSH key story? Do you remember that? I'm a pragmatist, Gerhard. I'm a pragmatist. Yours was so old, Ubuntu just wouldn't let you log in anymore. <laughs> I do remember that. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I, I, I rotate my SSH key every time I pair a program with you, which is once every <laughs> few years. I'm with Lars on this one. I just haven't cared. I'm happy to be convinced. Sometimes it's a convenience versus mm -hmm. benefit analysis. And it's always been like, I've looked at it and be like, mm, that's a lot of work. So if this makes it super simple and you can like toggle a switch, I already have my public private key on my computer. I do all my coding right here on this computer. So there's nothing else. Like I just turn it on and my commits are signed. I will happily do that. But I probably won't do much more than that because I don't work on mission critical systems that require such things. So what are we thinking for the next Kaizen? Because it's going to be episode 80 and it's going to be the last Kaizen for this year. What are we thinking? What would, you like, what would we like to improve? This is the hard one. No, no, this is, this is meant to be the fun one. Things that you, it will be Christmas. So, you know, if you want to pimp up the website, we can do that. <laughs> you know, just like add some bells and whistles with the Christmas spirit. One thing that I would really want to do is do the last pass to one password transition. We were missing an Adam last time. I know that we talked about this in episode 50 as well. So I think it's just a matter of setting up one password properly and then migrate our credentials across. Lars? Sounds like what everyone wants to do over the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do that in anticipation of the holidays. Hmm. 
because if you're good, you get nice presents. So you want to do good things. <laughs> I think this. I think it's got to ship before Christmas. I haven't counted exactly, but I'm pretty sure it will be before Christmas. And if you do it poorly, you can no longer log into things. True. Uh, like I'm on LastPass, and this this won't really affect me. So, okay, Lars, I just want a new router. That's what I want for Christmas. <laughs> Getting to four. We'll see. My big chapters for me has been such a big desire. I mean, I, 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 there's nothing else for me that I can think of. You know, I think you've given me my Christmas with chapters being in place. And I guess the one question that I didn't ask in the chapter section, since I'm mentioning it, is, Jared, you mentioned that since we have all the data in the database prior to shipping this, what happens then to, say, like the last five or ten episodes of a show that may or may not have chapters in there? Is there some uh, cron job or, you know, scheduler that goes back and says, update those mp3s how's that work yeah so i'm still working on some stuff okay with regards to that so specifically i'm i'm in the process of writing a background mp3 updater that will get fired every time we hit save on an episode and it will go out to if that episode has mp3 files associated with it it'll go out download them retag them and re-upload them so that the, we can continually change the chapters and they'll get up they'll be reflected and so I'm going to use that code to go back to all of the other ones because we started actually putting the data in early in the summer. And so we probably have a dozen or two episodes that have the chapters, but they're not in the MP3s. Once that code's done, I'll use it one time to use it on those old episodes. And then going forward, it will always work. So there's still some chapter stuff to do. One thing that I do want to do, which I haven't done, is actually integrate it into our on-site player. So you can click on the website and skip around, but like the actual player, if it was chapters aware, you could look at them, you could navigate via chapters while you're doing it, just like you can in the podcast app. So I know not that many people listen on the website, but when you are on the website, it's just it should at least be as good as uh, everything else. So I'd like to get that done by the next Kaizen. I remembered mine. It wasn't one password. Oh. Something bigger. It was clustering support. Proper clustering support so we can run more than one instance. Yeah, you're supposed to have that done by this one. True. See, someone's paying attention. What happened? So, <clears throat> I was, uh, <laughs> Save the hardest part for last. I did my research. I did my research. <laughs> okay. This is what happened. The caching library that we use, and I forget what, what it's called. I still have like the tabs open. Sasha Urich wrote it, and he's recommending a different library. He's recommending CacheX, which has support for clustering. Instead of Concache, you're talking about an Elixir library. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, Concache. Thank you. That's the one. Okay. Concache is a really old one. So CacheX is probably more modern. Exactly. So we have two options and I wanted us to talk about it. We can either remove caching and see how it handles with no caching. We'll have, remember, multiple PostgreSQL instances uh, of primary, secondaries, all that. We can, we'll have read replicas. So maybe caching won't be such a big deal. Or... We can look into going to cache X and see how we do that. There's quite a bit of code changes, and I know that some of it is like custom. That's why I'm wondering whether we disable it, whether that would be easier before migrating to a different library. I don't know. You tell me, Jared, what you think about that. It's definitely used somewhat pervasively and in ways that would be somewhat non-trivial to replace. It's not like just a few function calls that we could swap. So I have to look at what CacheX's API looks like and remind myself how we're using Concache in ways that I would have to port. You know, it would not be much more than half a day of work, I think. We could disable those caches, is that what you're saying, and then re-implement them later with CacheX. That would cause a few endpoints to probably get stressed, specifically our feeds, specifically the master feed and the plus plus feed and the changelog feed, honestly, just because there's so much data. That's just getting sent down the wire there. Aren't they covered by the CDN? They are, but when you purge, then you get hit, and then you have a request that takes a long time. Yeah, our, our feeds are, are cached by the CDN, aren't they, Karen? Yep, everything's cached by the CDN, yep. And the CDN, I mean, I think our caching right now is fairly low. Like, we only cache for 60 seconds. If... The origin is down. We cache, I think, for longer. I can't remember exactly what the setting is. But in theory, if for whatever reason a response doesn't come in within a certain amount of, I think it's like 10 seconds or 15 seconds, it will serve it 
from the cash. It sh they should be served from the cash. Sorry, when I say cash, sorry, from the CDN, from the CDN, sorry. The unfortunate fact is that we've never quite got Fastly to not hit our origin as much as it does, and they have pops all over the world. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it's getting hit by the CDN enough that if you have, like, a two- or three-second response, you can handle one of those. But if you're going to do that every time Fastly asks us for our feed, then we get super clogged up. At least that was what was happening the last time I did it, so I threw the the in-memory cache and, and it fixed it. Maybe there's better ways of doing that or even optimizing those queries. I just know it's it's just collecting a whole lot of data. A lot of the actual execution time is literally just like taking the the data and turning it into a template because it's like a thousand episodes. Okay, so we have a couple of improvements, a couple of ideas. Um, I'm sure a couple more will happen in the background. Lars was uh, especially deep in thought. So I think the best ideas usually come from the quiet ones. That's what usually happens. I'm looking forward to that, what, what he's been cooking there. As I mentioned, there's one more Kaizen this year. Uh, if you have ideas as a listener, send them our way. See how many of those uh, resonate with us and how many are feasible with the time frame that we have. But I'm very keen to see what you would like to improve, whether it's the changelog infrastructure, whether it's ship it, whether it's other things. It is about improvement. And while it is infrastructure and ops heavy, we do consider all the improvements that you send our way. Lars, thank you very much for joining us today. It was our pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Lars. Pleasure's all mine. Jared and Adam, as always. Thank you so much. Uh, we are back because we Adam missed last time. Mm -hmm. yep. Now we went from our smallest Kaizen ever to our biggest Kaizen ever. Mm, I like that. Thank you very much, everyone. Until next time, Kaizen. 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 Thank you for tuning into another episode of Ship It. Check out our other podcasts for developers at changelog.com slash master. You can connect with like-minded developers by changelog.com slash community. Thank you Fastly for the worldwide low-latency changelog.com. Our listeners love those blazing fast MP3s. Your Firecracker VMs and AdWireGuard integration are really sweet. Fly.io. That's it for this week. See you all next week. As for my last thought, next week we air the final episode recorded this summer. On July 20th, we talked modern software engineering with Dave Farley, the inventor of the deployment pipeline and the one behind the continuous delivery YouTube channel. 